All right, so I'm going to be reading from Psalm 73. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But for as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they had no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongues struts through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places, and you fall and you make them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors, like a dream when one awakes. O oh Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in the heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward you receive me to glory. Who am I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My heart and my, or my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near to God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. All right, well, thank you, Pastor Sam and the pastoral team for inviting me to be here this morning to preach. I do bring greetings from Cities Church, and uh, it is really, I'm super blessed. It is a joy to be here and to worship with you. And the way that I'd like to get started this morning is by asking you a question, okay? So I'm going to say a question here in just a second, and I want you to take a few seconds and think about the question. Really try to to picture in your minds the answer to the question. Here's the question for you. What is the good life? What is the good life? 
I want to propose to you that you have an answer to that question. Whether you've thought about it in detail or not. And, and whatever your answer is to that question, your answer to that question is the most dominant, consistent force of why you do what you do. The good life for each of us is how we envision the ideal picture of human flourishing. It's what we think when we think about life lived well. The good life is an image for us. It's, it's a picture that is held out in front of us as a goal. And everything that we love and every action that we take is directed toward achieving that goal. Because there, when we achieve that goal, that is the place where we can be happy. And so the good life for all of us is what we spend our entire lives pursuing. And Psalm 73 is all about that pursuit. If, if the pursuit of the good life is, is like a journey, then Psalm 73 shows us three milestones that must be part of that journey. There are three lessons here that we can learn from Psalm 73 that I think are absolutely necessary for our pursuit of the good life. In fact, I'd argue that we, we will never experience the good life without these three things. You will not. We will not experience the good life apart from these three things. And, and you can decide later if you agree with that. Okay, but I want you to know that I am preaching under that conviction this morning, and therefore I'd like for us to pray again for just a minute as we get started. And, and the prayer that I want to pray is a prayer that I, I pray for Cities Church um, at our moment of preaching, and so I want to pray it this morning uh, for us here at All People. So let me, let me pray and pray with me again. Father in heaven, please do now what only you can. Work in our hearts by the power of your Holy Spirit to make them open and receptive to you. We ask that you would break the enchantment of our idols, silence the distraction of our anxieties, defeat the schemes of our enemy. We confess that we are a people in need of change. And in this moment, by your grace, we surrender to your will. We pray Father, do whatever you want now for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Psalm 73, in pursuit of the good life, we learn first that we must, number one, recognize our broken perspective. Recognize our broken perspective. We see this in verses 1 to 15. Look at verse 1. Verse 1, truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. Psalm 73 is not a psalm of David. The last verse before Psalm 73 in Psalm 72 verse 20 tells us that the prayers of David are ended. And so now Psalm 73 is something different. This psalm is a psalm of Asaph. Who, who's that? 
We can read about Asaph in the book of Kings and Chronicles. He was a Levite. He was a worship leader. There are at least 12 Psalms that are connected to him. But if we're honest, like nobody really keeps up with Asaph, right? No one, most people wouldn't name their kids Asaph, right? We don't tell stories in Sunday school about Asaph. Asaph, by all accounts, is like a stand-in for the average Israelite. I'm just going to call him the psalmist throughout Psalm 73. He's meant to be for us an example of the everyman, someone we can relate to. And I think a lot of us can relate to what he's saying in verses 1 and 2. Because here's his situation in Psalm 73 verses 1 and 2. He knows the truth about God, but he doesn't think it applies to him. He, he says God is good. He knows that. God is good to Israel. God is good to the pure in heart. All that is true. He knows that's true. But in verse 2 he says it's just not for him. Somehow he sees himself as an unfortunate exception. He's an outlier. He's able to, to think and say right things about God. He goes to church He listens to the right voices. He knows the things to say. But he feels like he's on the outside looking in. And sometimes I think we all can feel that way. If we're honest, sometimes it can feel like everybody else is doing okay but me. Because we're too complicated. It's just too messy. We're always, it can seem like sometimes, on the brink of losing it. Almost stumbled. Nearly slipped. So we, we understand what he's saying here in verse 2. But then he explains in verse 3 that the reason for his struggle was because he was envious of the arrogant. He saw the prosperity of the wicked and he wished that he had what they have. And although here in the psalm, he he starts here speaking in past tense. He's talking about a way that he used to be. You notice that after verse 3, it's almost like he gets swept back up in a whirlwind of complaint. In verses 4 to 12, he goes on to, to describe the wicked. And what he says here is not necessarily untrue. But it is embellished. Verses 4 to 12, he's speaking from emotion here. He's talking about what it feels like. He says, the wicked have no pangs until death. Really? Like none at all? Like they have no trouble ever? And he says, yeah, their, their car never breaks down. Their kids never get hurt. Their team never loses. Their grass is always greener. They don't have any of the problems that we normal folks have. And they're wicked. Everything goes right for them, he says. And they hurt people. They hurt people. And worst of all, is that they strut around and they shake their fist at God. They pretend, in all their wickedness, they pretend like God doesn't even exist. And so verse 12 concludes. Verse 12, he says, Behold, 
These are the wicked. Always at ease. They increase in riches. Things just get better and better and better for the wicked, but things get worse and worse and worse for the righteous. And the psalmist says, it's not fair. It's not fair. Then look at verse 13. So he's spiraling here, right? We can see it in verses 4. He's spiraling here. He's becoming more and more out of touch with reality. And in verse 13, he says that he has lived righteously. He's kept his heart clean. He's washed his hands. He's done what God has wanted. But, he says, it's all been in vain, in vain. This is rock bottom, verse 13. But then in verse 15, it's almost like he comes to and he speaks again as if he's speaking in the past tense. He's talking now about the way it was. This is what he says. He says, if I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. In other words, in verse 15, the psalmist has found enough footing to look back at his time of struggle, to realize that he was off, and to be glad that he did not express his struggle in public. In verse, in verse 15, he's saying, in the midst of my struggle, if I had posted online all the stuff that was going through my head, I would have messed up a lot of people. He, he, he was on the edge. In, in verses 4 to 12, he was on the edge of deconstructing. And he says here, it's a good thing I did not start a blog about it. Because he knows if he would have done that, he would have led others astray. Which means this. It means that, that he is now admitting that he was not thinking straight. He was out of touch with reality. He, he, he now recognizes he had a broken perspective. And this is absolutely necessary in our pursuit of the good life, this is part of what we could call honest self-understanding. Sometimes, church, we get it wrong. Sometimes, our lens on reality is skewed. And, and, and we need to get this. If the best place is to not be there, if, if the best place is to not have a broken perspective, then the second best place is to have a broken perspective and know it. The worst place is to have a broken perspective and be oblivious to it, see? The worst place is to say in verse 13 that everything is vain. It's all been pointless. But to say that and not know you're wrong in saying it, that's the worst place. And so in verse 15, the psalmist is at the second best place. And here's the thing with second best place. When it comes to our growth in self-understanding, when it comes to learning more about 
how we've been shaped to see reality, when it comes to learning more about how we engage relationships, the more we get honest about ourselves, we cannot be afraid of second best place. Because when we're honest about ourselves, we're going to find areas of brokenness in our stories at a pace that change cannot match. And we have to be okay with that. That's that's the only way you're going to have true community, right? Be okay with second best place. Be okay that he's still working on me. Right? We have to be okay that we still have room to grow. We still have room to grow in our Christ likeness from the heart. And that growth doesn't happen overnight. It takes time. And so, in our humanity, our brokenness, our sinfulness, there are times when our perspective is broken. And in pursuit of the good life, the first thing we have to do is recognize that. Recognize our broken perspective. Here's the second thing. In pursuit of the good life, we must, number two, remember that God is real. This is verses 16 to 24. Look at verse 16. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Recognizing your broken perspective is a lot to take in. And maybe the hardest part is knowing that you're not completely off. Like you're wrong about some things, but you're not wrong about everything. The, the wicked do prosper. The, the righteous do suffer. That's an observation. It's an observation that the people of God have been able to make for centuries. We could come up with examples this morning of this. How the wicked prosper and the righteous suffer. But if we were, if we were more precise, if we were, if we were trying to be more accurate, we would say some of the wicked prosper for now. Some of the righteous suffer for now, but there is more to the story. And to say that there's more to the story is to say that there is another perspective. And that perspective, the perspective we need is God's perspective, and that's what we see in verse 17. This whole thing is a mess for the psalmist. It's it's overwhelming, it's confusing, it's frustrating, and the psalmist is tired, man. He's tired. Verse 16. Until, verse 17, I went to the sanctuary of God. The sanctuary of God is the place of God's presence. In the Old Testament, remember that God was the Holy One of Israel who dwelled in their midst, in the the heart of the temple, in his sanctuary. And so to be in God's sanctuary is to be close to God. The closer to the sanctuary, the closer you are to God. So the psalmist, who's a guy like us, he's a guy just like us, when he went close to God, that's when he remembered that God is real. If, if distance leads to distortion, then closeness leads to clarity. And to be close to God, to remember God's realness then, it moves us beyond the shallow acknowledgement and empty words of who God is to something deeper. 
here is where we begin to see everything in light of God. Everything in reality, our, our every way of thinking, our every way of seeing and moving and acting, everything now has God always at the center. When we remember that God is real, we remember that God sees everything. God sees it all, and we want to know that. It means we go about our moments and we're asking, God, what do you think about this? We want to know what God thinks. What has God said? And when we're close to him, when we're close to God, when we remember God, that's when we begin to see rightly, to repent sincerely, and repent sincerely to see rightly. That's what's going on in verses 18 to 21. When the psalmist remembered God, that's when he discerned the end of the wicked. He got the fuller story. Truly God will judge the wicked. He will not let them stand. He'll make them fall to ruin. He'll destroy them. He'll sweep them away. And then their present prosperity will seem like a faint dream. Look at verse 21. This is where he looks back. The psalmist looks back on his broken perspective and he repents. He has been honest with himself and now is when he gets honest with God. Verse 21. When my soul was embittered. And that's, that word embittered is a great word to describe what's been going on in the first part of this psalm. B bitterness. Bitterness. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I, I was like a beast toward you. Any of you guys feel like you can be honest with God like that? God, I was an idiot. God, I was wrong, and I was stubborn about it. I was wrong, and I was stubborn. My heart was so closed off to you that I was like a beast. I was acting like an animal to you, God. Look, I can assure you that you will never be able to get honest with God like that unless you know that God loves you. You won't. You can't. When God comes to us and God asks us, like he asked Adam, where are you? Which, that's, God does that, by the way. If, if, if we're living attentive to God's presence, if we're aware of God's realness, every day God comes to us and he asks us, where are you? And when God wants to know where we are, we don't have to hide from him. We, we don't have to hide from God because our, our guilt and our shame, all the things that would make us want to hide from him, all those things have been overcome. That's the difference that Jesus makes. Jesus took upon himself all of our fear and all of our guilt 
in all of our shame. And when he died on the cross in our, pre- in our place, what Jesus did is he put to death on the cross, he put to death everything that keeps us from God. He put to death everything that would make us want to hide from God. Everything about our lives that would make us want to hide, to cower in fear and shame. He took it. Jesus took it. So there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God is now, because of Jesus, our Father. We have the right to be called children of God. And we know that he loves us. And we know that as our father who loves us, we as his children, we can be honest with him. We can be honest with him. We can tell him where we are. And when we, when we do, see, that's when there's the breakthrough of hope. Yeah, I was wrong, God. I was, I was wrong. I was a mess. I was, I was like an animal. But verse 23, nevertheless... Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Held, guided, received. Held, guided, received. And there's a contrast here. There's a contrast to the wicked that's been described in the previous verses. Everybody look at verse 17 for a minute. See that last word there, end? The last word, verse 17, end? Well, in the Hebrew, that word end in verse 17 and the word afterward in verse 24, they sound the same. Okay? So the psalmist is saying, in the end, the wicked are destroyed. And in the end, I am received to glory. In the end, the wicked are destroyed. In the end, I am received to glory. See, this is the right perspective. And he doesn't just see the fuller story here, but what he's doing is he's seeing the end of the story. The end of the story. I I love uh, John Bunyan's book, The Pilgrim's Progress. It's a classic. You guys have probably heard of it. Um, I've tried, I've read it, I mean, I've read it every year now for the past few years, trying to, to keep up. Spurgeon said that he, he read it over a hundred times throughout his, his life. And it's a great book to read and reread because although it was written, it was written in 1678, published in 1678, it is, I mean, insanely relevant to the Christian life. You just read it and you just learn more and more. And, and there's this one scene in the book when Christian, who's the main character, um, he's at this place called the Palace Beautiful. And the whole book's an allegory of the Christian life. And the Palace Beautiful was probably the church. And so Christian's there, and he's talking with other pilgrims about how he became Christian, how his, his name used to be Graceless and became Christian. And he's telling them about how he was converted, how he became a new person. And they ask him if, if he ever has to deal with his old way of seeing. See, he used to live in the city of destruction. He saw the world a certain way. But now he's converted. He's changed. He's a Christian. And they say, well, do you ever have, like, problems seeing things the old way like he used to? Are there times when, when he still has to bear 
with his broken perspective? That's the question. And he says to them, all the time. And, and they say, well, are there any moments when those things are vanquished, which at other times are your perplexity? Okay? That's the 1678 way of saying, how do you overcome this broken perspective? What do you do to overcome this broken way of seeing things that is so ingrained in your mind? What do you do, Christian? And Christian says that the times are more seldom than I'd like, but those times are to me golden hours. That's what he calls them, golden hours. And one of the ways that Christian gets there One of the ways he gets to this place of seeing rightly, of the right perspective, he says it's when my thoughts wax warm about whither I am going. That will do it. That's a 1678 way of saying, I get the right perspective when I think about the end of the story. Christian sees rightly when he remembers the end. So look, don't look, let's not forget where we're going, right? That, that's what he's saying. It's the same thing happening here in Psalm 73. In Psalm 73, like Christian in Bunyan's story, the psalmist knows where everything is headed. I'm held by, I am held by God. I am guided by God. I will be received by God. I know the end of the story. I know how the story ends. And and we remember the end of the story here because we see rightly, because we've been honest with God, because we remember that God is real. That's the second lesson. Remember that God is real. And now here's the third lesson. In our pursuit of the good life, we must reorder our heart's affections. This is verses 25 to 28. The psalmist is now faced with ultimate reality and he begins to see things as clearly as they could be seen this side of heaven. Derek Kidner, who is my favorite commentator on the Psalms, he says that this passage is unsurpassed, brief as it is, in the record of man's response to God. In Psalm 73, 25 to 28, the psalmist is in a golden hour. And the affections of his heart are put in order. Uh, Another word for affections is love. Love is an action of the heart. We love from our hearts. And the ancients of church history would tell us that our fundamental problem as sinners is that our hearts are flawed. We have in our sin what's called disordered affections, which means we tend to love the wrong things in the wrong way. In other words, in our sin, we tend to love lesser things more than God. But that is not what's going on here in Psalm 73, verse 25. What what we see happening in verse 25 is what St. Augustine in the 4th century would call a, a well-ordered heart is to love the right thing to the right degree in the right way 
with the right kind of love. The psalmist says to God, whom have I in heaven but you? There is nothing on earth I desire besides you. This is a man whose searching has stopped. He, he has found his ultimate goal. He has found what Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century describes as that goal we pursue that so fulfills our desire as to leave nothing else to be desired. See, there's no more idols now. No more idols. That's a dead end road. All the substitutes are now seen for the sham they are. Give me God, he says. Give me God. I want him. Let goods and kindred go. This mortal life also, the body they may kill. Give me God. Give me God, says the worthy disciple, not because he loves father or mother or son or daughter less, but because he loves God more. More than his comfort, more than his career, more than his capabilities. He loves God more with all his heart and with all his soul and with all his might, which he knows is feeble. God, whom have I in heaven but you? And my life is a mess right now. Nothing seems to be going my way. The basement's leaking again. I haven't slept well in a month. I'm worried about my kids. Work is a headache. Can God be our all-satisfying treasure in moments like that, in real life? Can he be? And we know that God must be. God must be our all-consuming passion and our all-satisfying treasure in real life because real life is all we have. That's the honesty of verse 26. He says, my flesh and my heart may fail. And it, it will fail. It will fail. I'm a broken man. I get it wrong sometimes. There's a good chance that I'll die one day. But God is the strength of mine. God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. God is my everything. He's my everything. Truly. What do I have that I did not receive from him? Including my very life. If then I received even my very life from him. How could I not love him more than life itself? For what is life without him? What good would life be apart from his presence? For behold, verse 27, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. Hell is that, Moses knew, which is why Moses prayed, God, if you don't go with us, don't let us go. True life is to be with God. Everlasting true life is to be with God forever. Many people spend everything. They spend everything they've got running away from God in search of the good life. All those things about the wicked that I envied, none of those things really matter now. That's not what I want. But for me, for me, it's good to be near God. 
another way to say it, verse 28, but for me, the nearness of God is my good. The nearness of God is the good life. And God is not merely one piece of the puzzle. It's not that we want a bunch of stuff which includes God. Jesus is not the chaplain of the American dream. God is the ultimate good. And to have him leaves nothing else to be desired. But now all other things are subordinate to him. And they are desired for his sake. See, this is, this is the reordering of the heart's affections. God is first and highest. And everything else is to be directed toward him. The good life is to have God and to have all other things Godward. That's, that is Psalm 73. The good life is to have God and to have all other things Godward. That is the true ideal picture of human flourishing. That is the goal. And that is actually what you're looking for. That, that's actually what we all really want. And when you hear this, I'm not saying this to you as a kind of law for you to attain. Reordering the affections of your heart does not mean try harder, do better, improve yourself. It means come rest. Stop the, stop the searching and the pursuing the good life through all these dead end roads. All these empty promises. The invitation to reorder your heart's affections. To put God first and highest. Rest. Find in God your refuge. Find in him your refuge. The end of your searching. He is our pursuit. The nearness of God is our good. And so we recognize our broken perspective. We remember that God is real. We reorder the affections of our hearts to put him first. And we hope for the day when our experience of his presence is uninterrupted and unending. Not just a golden hour, but a golden eternity. So Father, would you by the power of your Holy Spirit work in us that kind of hope. That kind of hope. To remember the end of the story. To know that you, God, you are our good. In Jesus' name.